Welcome to the Truth to Power Show and Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is our co-host, Tori Ashley Matos. Welcome, Tori. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And with us today is our special guest, April Lee Weiberg. She is a Cree woman, advocate, and founding member of Stolen Sisters and Brothers Awareness Movement, a social justice movement raising awareness on the human rights crisis of missing, murdered, and exploited indigenous people. Um, the SSBAM is an entirely grassroots movement and therefore is not funded nor seeks any type of funding from government, business, or individuals. Uh, formerly named the Stolen Sisters Awareness Movement, it, um, the Stolen Sister Awareness Walks began in Edmonton, in 2007, it was the first walk in the province of Alberta, Canada, raising awareness specifically on the violence and disproportionate number of missing, murdered, and exploited uh, indigenous peoples of the First Nations women and girls in Canada. Uh, welcome, Ms. Swiberg. Welcome, April. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So, thank you. I, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And it's so good to have you. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. We're promoting. Um, awareness about now first of all i'll start you off with just a conversation about the um the organization soul sisters and brothers awareness movement and tell us a little bit about how that formed and 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 your involvement in it all this kind of stuff yeah sure so um as you said um, my name is april eve i'm a member of the mikasu cree first nation um we are 100% grassroots in the sense that we don't seek any type of funding from government, business, or individuals. Um, many of us involved in this type of advocacy are survivors of violence and also family members of missing, murdered, and exploited Indigenous people. Um, we started our walks um, back in 2007, and yeah, we're still at it. And unfortunately, the human rights crisis of our missing, murdered, and exploited people is still very, very much um, a, a huge issue. And yeah, we're just really honored to be here today. And, and thank you for, you know, helping us spread the word even further about this crisis. So tell us about, oh, what kind of role can we play? Uh, is it is your objective to raise awareness so that then the public can then uh, kind of support your cause, but what, what kind of role can the public play in, in this kind of thing? If they're not giving funding, they give time, they can give donate time. Can they do that or what can they do? What can we do to support yeah, I, your cause? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So yeah, I guess, you know, our overall objective when we started the movement was to raise awareness. It's in the name of the movement. Yeah. But I think now, you know, it's been over 13 years. We're at a, a state where we need to take action. And the issue is not getting any better. If, if anything, um, we have even more missing and murdered and exploited people. Um, even in the midst of a global pandemic, we, we still continue to see high rates of um, our people going missing um, and suffering from violence. So I think just even having a conversation about it um, with your family, with your coworkers, you know, that this is something that's happening on this soil, um, often we hear about injustices against people in other countries. And, you know, often um, in North America, we pride ourselves that we are a democracy and that we, you know, stand for that. 
Um, but unfortunately, the, the harsh reality is, is that, you know, there's a human rights crisis happening right here and not enough is being done to address that and, and stop it and denormalize it because the, the violence against Indigenous people has been normalized and has gone on for over 500 years um, since contact. So, yeah, we, we definitely need support and... You know, if I, we know that, um, you know, there's many different communities across Canada and the United States uh, raising awareness, marching, rallying, holding vigils. So just, you know, come out to the events, um, you know, support the families and the survivors. And that's really all, you know, you really need to do to get started if you're not involved already. Yeah. So what about? I think that um, that's, yeah. Go ahead. I just, wanted, I just wanted to comment about. I think that that's one of the interesting things about this moment in our movement, collective movement toward human rights, especially in North America, is that you know we're finally cluing into the fact that we are complicit and have been complicit in some of the most egregious human rights violations since the founding of you know, the, the nations that they are since contact, as you said, we're just getting, we're just now cluing into the fact that it doesn't happen in other places. In fact, it happens right here. And I, I think, you know, that's what's interesting about involvement in this moment. And that's something that I wanted to ask you, um, piggybacking off of that question, a lot of people, uh, are sort of engaging in activism for the first time uh, through social media and Twitter and Instagram. And I think a lot of people who are well-intentioned allies who do want to be helpful, but don't know how, think that that what they're doing in terms of like posting black squares or retweeting Twitter threads about information and, and places to call and thinking that that's mm -hmm. kind of the, the beginning and end of their advocacy for uh, marginalized groups. What to you is the difference between um, an actually helpful, true ally and mm -hmm. somebody who is engaging in performative allyship? And again, another great question. So um, yeah, when we started our movement, social media wasn't really a big thing. Um, but now like you see this new phenomenon where people are getting involved, but I think you still need to take that beyond your computer screen. You still have to show up and, and be present and, you know, support, support the people that are leading these movements and not try to make it about yourself. And, you know, I think listening to the stories of the survivors is so important and also believing because, you know, we think about the American Indian Holocaust and the, um, the children that died in the Indian um, residential schools, like the boarding schools, like thousands of children, if not, you know, millions combined Canada and the United States where, you know, these children were, were taken from their families. And then, you know, if they survive that, they're passing this trauma on to the next generation. And yeah, there's, um, you know, there, there are so many people that, you know, 
want to share those stories, but just to be heard and believed is so crucial and, and be genuine about it. You know, I, I get, I get kind of surprised sometimes when I'm, I'm at a rally, whether I'm, I'm one of the organizers or not. And I see a lot of selfies being taken for me, I guess I'm kind of old school. Like when you're at a rally, you know, you're so busy, you're so involved, you don't really have time for that. And I understand like, you know, I'm obviously not a millennial, (laughs) you know, there's, there's a different type of flavor here, but at the same time, don't make it about you, right? Like don't make, this is not a trend. This we're talking about real lives. We're talking about hardcore injustices against our, our, our black and indigenous people. And, you know, this is something that we can't just turn off at night. You, you know, when we go to bed, we live with this every day of our lives and we have to, you know, I guess to be a true ally, you just need to be authentic and be present and, and listen. It's been funny watching all of the um, Instagram influencers and, you know, Twitter influencers speaking as a millennial, I'm yeah. 24. So I'm, I'm kind of in the thick of it. Okay. It's, it's <laughs> funny watching all these people get um, exposed, like people who are at rallies and there for like the right reason, like taking video of people who are trying to like take photo shoots for their Instagram pages at a rally. And then like other people who are like trying to shame them, taking video and then posting it to Twitter and Instagram to be like, don't follow this this influencer Mm -hmm. because this is what they're doing. They're, exploiting essentially a whole movement to post it on their Instagram feeds that you think they're active in something that they're not active in, that they're there, that they're there to play a part in like a, as an actor on a stage, you know, like some sort of grossly exploitative um, moment for their Instagram and all these people just claiming that and just like putting it all over so that everybody knows that they're fake. And I, I think that's sort of an interesting um sort of like I don't know how to say it but like the opposite of what they're trying to do in a great way it's sort of like reverse rallying reverse activism where instead of you know while you're also at this act like while you're also being an active part of this you're also calling out people who are trying to take advantage of it and I think it's sort of an interesting millennial way to you know be a part of it but also make sure that we're like i don't know what's like make or, sure that yeah. yeah making people accountable like yeah and i think that that's fascinating the way yeah. that it's so like the way that social media has made everything so layered even our right. activism in this mm-hmm. way that we can hold people accountable while also being active ourselves right yeah no you you brought up a really good point in that, that there is exploitation going on in that sense right and that can be very dangerous because you may have you know um a young person you know they're really genuine about it they want to get active and then they look up to this individual this um mm-hmm. you know um person and then they think oh well that's how you do it yeah. and it's right. not how you do it right like right yeah. so, so what do you yeah, think no, about also there's a movement towards uh taking down statues, taking down old monuments that uh, do not reflect the values of this new, this new awakening, this new realization, this new awareness 
what is your opinion on that? Do you feel that like that's more effective or less effective? Or what is your opinion? Or do you feel like it's starting to at least uh, break through to the uh, older generations that, you know, this mm-hmm. is something that we want to take a stand on? And, you know, just like, uh, you know, when every, any revolution happens, we have to take down the, the monuments of the older generation, yeah. you know? Oh, definitely. Um, I think, you know, if there was ever the right time to denounce those yeah. monuments um, of genocide, now is the time. Yeah. And, you know, obviously not everyone agrees that that's the right approach, but why are we worshiping these, you know, like they, they what they represent is so wrong. Mm. So why, why do we continue to keep them and we tolerate it? Um, just um, about a month ago, I took part in a digital rally I was one of the speakers and I denounced the Confederate flag because you may be surprised, but even up here in Canada, we see symbols like the Confederate flag, symbols of hatred all the time. Mm. And uh, yeah, I called it out. And one of the viewers, um, and she's a non-Indigenous uh, woman, um, she actually started a petition to ban the use of hate symbols in the community that community that we live in right now, I believe there are several petitions happening across the nation trying to ban the Confederate flag because of what it represents. It has no place in our society. Um, you know, and some may argue that too, that it, you know, it's a symbol of pride and um, Southern heritage. However, um, I think if you did a, like a, a vote amongst um, community, it, it, it would come back that, no, this actually represents, you're basically glorifying slavery and a genocide of Black and Indigenous people. And it's it's threatening. It's threatening to see that image. So, and, I, you know, you think about, you know, you want to make change. Are you going to be part of the solution? Or are you going to be part of the problem? Right? Like, you need to, I guess, as a, a citizen, you know, like again just listen to the people that are fighting for these changes hear their side of the story and what this maybe it doesn't represent that to you but to me you know i think about the safety of my children when i when i see that flag i feel intimidated and you know i wonder you know what level of violence is that person flying that flag you know what type of person are they? Are they the type that would act out in violence against our people? You don't know, right? So I just, I think now is definitely the time. Take them down, take, yeah, get rid yeah. of them, all of it and replace it with, you know, images, like true images of um, democracy. Yeah, and I think that what happens now is we have like a, a monolithic narrative going on instead of a dialogue, instead of a deeper understanding <laughs> Of our heritage of our of our history we have like a kind of amplified uh patriotism or so-called patriotism that is kind of uh silencing or drowning out uh too many voices too many of our heritage you know when we think about our heritage we're thinking about going even further back than a short time that uh these these areas were under that flag these a very short time um that they were under this this uh, period of time, whereas we go even further back, we understand we're in dialogue with our heritage, with our true heritage, 
being that as, as one of the questions you were, we were talking about is how does a specific truth act for a way for your empowerment? And, you know, it's understanding that um, these lands are, you know, uh, systemically, systemically denied and ignored as being uh, uh, traditionally indigenous lands and a, yeah. a narrative of, of the broken narrative of broken treaties and 500 ongoing years of genocide. That's quoting from your answer and just give you a prompt to talk a little bit more about how, you know, recognizing mm -hmm. the deeper heritage, the deeper history there, you know, that we yeah. had enough of kind of superficial history. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, I, I'm not anti-Canadian in any way. Yeah. Um, we just had um, a couple of years ago, the anniversary of the 150 years of Canada. Oh. However, if you talk to an Indigenous person, there may be some, um, you know, like we don't necessarily agree with that because we've been here this whole time. Yeah. Right. This is maybe... The idea of Canada is 150 years old, but like we're, we've always been here. And even that gets, you know, there's theories that our people came across the Bering Strait from Asia. But why Indigenous people in North America? Everyone else can be from somewhere else. It's like we are constantly having to fight to just be acknowledged and fight to have our stories heard and you know, not be completely erased off the map, if you will. And I was just going to bring in that word erasure because so I'm Puerto Rican, um, but I, I have always, I, and I've always heard that, you know, Columbus discovered America, like, right. That's the narrative that you get when you're in yeah. school. And, and I don't think that people can actually grasp the level of violent erasure in that sentence because the first place that Columbus discovered was uh, an, a grouping of islands that he called Hispaniola, which were what we would now call um, uh, Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Um, and then he moved on to Puerto Rico and the Bahamas and things like that. And, you know, the people who were there were actually the first casualties of the American experiment, right? You have Arawak Indians, Taino people, my people, who were slaughtered, systematically slaughtered, and slaughtered for a, a colony, for purposes of, a, of colony and colonization and moving uh, Spanish wealth and Spanish power into the new world, all of this. They were fodder for that. And so when people say that Columbus discovered America, right, we forget what america was before columbus there's so much violent erasure that comes from that and when you, you talk about you know the 150 years of canada it's 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 that sort of mind-blowing ignorance that comes from people in power and people in power are often just everyday citizens who don't realize the privilege that they have and those are sometimes the most, that's sometimes the most insidious power yes. that you know you're hearing 150 years of Canada and you're celebrating this, but you're not thinking past that 150 years as if what yeah. happened 150 years ago is, you know, the, the spark of creation. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that goes so um, unspoken and it's so forgotten. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's, I think that that's some of the most insidious violence that happens against minorities. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
And like Columbus, some of these monuments that are coming down, you know, these are, these are pedophiles. These are murderers, right? Mm. And it's, it's, it's like, you know, there's been many advocates and activists that have been speaking out against these things for so long, but it's like, it's just sort of coming, coming to the tip now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's sad because even I, like, I personally believe that even like when, when you look at the media, our, our, our indigenous people are often left out there too. Like how often are you watching television and you're seeing a, a commercial for Tide laundry detergent and you see a family of very recognizably indigenous people? Never. Mm-hmm. When do you see an indigenous person um, you know, driving a car for, um, you know, a car advertisement, never like it, we're completely left out of the entire picture and we are huge consumers, you know, so why are we tolerating this? Why are, you know, but anyway, we're, we're, we're here and we're, we're, not we're television shows now. Yeah. We yeah, have television a- shows about the most obscure racial and ethnic minorities nowadays, but we still don't have a lot of television shows or very popular films about indigenous groups. And I, that you bring that up is sort of wild because I, I've, you know, you think about it when you're in the middle of these movements and, you know, as a activist, as an actor and activist, you think about the ways. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a cute, it's a cute one. It looks good on the resume and the Twitter bio. Uh Um, As an activist, you do really have to think about um, what, bodies yeah people are seeing yeah you know what I, on stage in in film on television in music in just mm-hmm. general media as you were speaking to in yeah. commercial even what are the what is the actual matter that we are interrogating like what are we actually yeah. uh having dialogue with and yeah. it's not just about who is present but who is not yeah, like that was one of the uh, criticisms that were that was brought up recently about um, Hamilton is that, and I I struggle a lot with with Hamilton, but mm-hmm. one of the most incredible things that I I thought was brought up in the more recent dialogue now that it's on television was the room where it happens. Right, you mm-hmm. have Aaron Burr talking about uh, no one else was in the room where it happened. And there's a fantastic academic who I forget their name, but they bring up, there were probably enslaved people in that room who Mm -hmm. were waiting the tables of these, of these lawmakers and these politicians. So (laughs) it's sort of odd to have this idea that no one else was in the room where it happened. And that's where I struggle with Hamilton because had we not had that song, no one would have thought about it. Yeah. But the fact that they don't address it is an issue. But I just think it's so interesting because that's that that's that erasure. That's the people who are not not only is the is it important who we are engaging with, but it's important that when we are engaging with those people, who gets silenced, you know? Yeah. Right. And that's another thing too, like the tokenism. So mm-hmm. maybe you do see an indigenous person, like there was a time I did see a car commercial, they panned a group of people standing on a street. There was one indigenous man, but he wasn't dressed like everybody else. He was dressed like he was going to a powwow or a Mm. ceremony. So why him? Why just him? Yeah, they just it becomes like a politically motivated 
oh, we're just putting one person in just to show that we're multicultural. Yeah, like we're being diverse, but yet. Diverse, yeah. Exactly. And even some of these major box office movies. Yeah. Yeah, we have now, I guess we have real Indigenous people playing the parts, but it's very often not a leading role. And there's usually always a white male savior as the leading role, right? So it's like... This might be a little obscure, but there was a film a few years ago called August Osage County. Mm. And there was an Indigenous actress in the movie who just recently was, it was discovered that she was murdered. And so I find it interesting that you're here and that we can talk about this because it's, even though this person was finally able to make themselves and their culture visible, they were still not protected from the very thing that you're fighting against, mm-hmm. the very thing that you are trying to bring awareness to. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a testament to the state of our nations, respectively, mm-hmm. that even with that visibility, even though it wasn't, um, the scope of it wasn't very, very wide, but it was still like very powerful visibility, it still doesn't protect that person or that culture or that those people from mm-hmm. the thing that seeks to destroy them, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're, about, I was just oh, sorry. When we talk about telling their own stories that then in all these structures, we have approved, you know, uh, people of the establishment telling their stories. So that, that also is problematic because it's like, you know, when we have people from the, the status quo, the establishment telling the stories of indigenous peoples, then it's always kind of slanted towards these cliches, these stereotypes, these, yeah. uh, you know, assu- assumptions that they have rather than telling their own stories and empowering people, yeah. empowering indigenous people to tell their own stories. And in a culturally safe space, you talked a little bit about this, how they, where they're heard and believed. So tell us a little bit, we can expand on that, that the stories of the um, Native American Holocaust, the stories of survivors are things that we want to be able to yeah. w- w- bear witness to, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and hear that full impact. Yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes um, there's a misconception that, you know, we're exaggerating yeah. or it really wasn't that bad. But, you know, there's so many stories about the Holocaust. I mean, obviously this we witnessed that and some people still deny it. But there's yeah. many people who we, we, we listen, we bear witness to the yeah. World War Two and the Jewish Holocaust. So also we should bear witness and listen to yeah. the stories of indigenous peoples. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even like what Tori mentioned about the Arawak people, there's yeah. not enough awareness that, you know, this was a complete nation, a, a tribe of people that were exterminated. Yeah. Right. And there's, especially in the United States, there's complete tribes, like whole tribes that have been completely wiped out. But, you know, um, I think, you know, eventually we'll get there, like as these truths are coming, I, I don't believe we can heal as a nation from the, our violent colonial past, unless we do know our truths, right? And these things have to come, like, we, we just need to be aware, right? And, you know, honor those that lost their lives. A, a question about that. Um, you say reconciling with, with a deeply violent past. What then is the future? What does the future look like that can actually bridge the gap between 
the realities of um, these hardships that we face together as a nation that we have to contend with mm-hmm. moving forward as that nation. Like how, what does that look like for you personally? Yeah. Um, what does that reconciliation look like? And how do you reconcile a nation with a exter- uh, with the intention of trying to exterminate a first nation? Yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of our young people becoming educated and, you know, getting involved in in movements like this. And, you know, they're really getting um, getting to a place where they feel empowered. And I think, you know, maybe my generation and those before me, we never maybe really thought that, yeah, maybe one day we could run this country. You know, maybe there would be a majority of our people in in government running the country. But, you know, you see that younger generation and they're so full of hope and they're so full of, um, you know, wonderful, um, like energy and ideas that, you know, who's to say, you know, that one day we are our, our leader here will be an indigenous person. You're seeing more, especially in the United States, our, our indigenous women um, getting um, seats in Congress and they're, they're, you know, it's, it's a slow moving process, but it's happening. And it's part of this, um, this growing movement where, you know, one day, you know, it's, it, I, I personally don't believe it's always going to be like this because we are not tolerating it. We, we want to be a part of this country and we, we believe in, you know, justice for all but you know and that's the other issue too you know we talk about our justice system but you know for many of us it's actually an injustice system and you know the majority of um the the homicides of indigenous people are unsolved so my question is who are who are the perpetrators walking freely Mm. you know there's um yeah, there's, there, there has to be hope, right? Otherwise you couldn't continue to fight there. But for me, that my hope is what I see in our young people that believe, you know, that they are valued and they, um, they will be our future leaders. I know it. Yeah. We're starting to see the, the toxicity of um, the patriarchy and how the structures that are, uh, supporting that ideological bent is actually victimizing the very people that it seeks to empower and that, that you know kind of dismantling that is, is a way in to empowerment of all people honestly and truthfully in the places where they are and that we are in dialogue with each other that we're listening to each other rather than trumping up this um, savior complex that we need to save each other. We need to just hear each other. We need to listen to each other, bear witness to each other, so that then we're in more in dialogue truthfully and honestly with uh, the places we're living in rather than these false narratives that are being put up and pretending mm-hmm. like shallow um, traditions that we come from rather than yeah. digging deeper into the, the true history of mm-hmm. our land, what this yeah. land is coming from and, and where our psyches are coming from that we're all kind of descendants of you know Mm -hmm. thousands of years of history rather than just these shallow 100 200 years of history yeah Yeah. so true yeah and then also one of your questions that we were talking about i just want to get a little bit more experience in uh 
I, I asked the question, not counting your own work, what is one book, song, uh, poem, or film you wish everyone in the world could experience? And you answered Common and John Legend's Glory. Tell us a little bit about that work. Actually, I'm not familiar. I didn't get a chance to Google it, but tell us. Tell us oh, okay. About that well, work. Yeah. yeah, you, you have, have to. to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a powerful song. And um, oh, yeah, sometimes like when I'm feeling like, you know, drained and like feeling hopeless, I'll listen to songs like Glory and I'll just, you know, it'll, it'll reignite something inside of me where, you know, it's, you, you get reminded that you're not alone. You know, there's been, you know, our, our people have been fighting for justice for like many, many years. And it's just, it's so, it's such a powerful and, and inspiring song. And if someone listening today, you know, they're looking for some inspiration, Google that song because it's, okay. it's, it's incredible. Oh, good. And good, Google yeah. the Google the Oscar performance because the performance that they did yeah. in that song at the Oscars was remarkable. It it kind of was a perfect little microcosm of exactly what that song is about. Oh God, it was beautiful. Yeah. Vita, I'm surprised. I can't believe that you haven't heard that song. I probably have, but I I didn't recognize it as such. It's from Selma. Oh right, right. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't uh, recognize the the name Common John Legend, but. Uh, John Lennon, okay, yeah. I don't know, I was reading, I, I probably read it wrong. But anyway, <laughs> um, so now, uh, tell us a little bit now, one of the questions you answered about uh, there's no wrong way to pray, that, that was interesting. Uh, I think it was under, uh, what do you hope that uh, people get from your uh, your life practice? Um, tell us okay. a little bit about that, if you can expand on that. Wh when you teach or share your principal discipline with others, what do you hope the listener will receive from you? And you said prayer is the most powerful tool we have. Tell us a little bit about the role of prayer, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really did use the wrong word there. I meant to say gift. I believe that our our prayers are our most powerful gift. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't grow up necessarily with my culture, and it wasn't until, like, after I um, was liberated from sexual exploitation that I started learning more about my indigenous heritage and there's um, a ceremony we do a cleansing ceremony. Maybe you both have done this before, but we smudge, we cleanse ourselves with sage smoke oh. usually. And I remember um, being at an indigenous gathering in the inner city and, you know, feeling really awkward. I wanted to participate, but I didn't grow up with these teachings. I don't want to offend anyone. And an elder actually approached me um, and said, you know what, there's no wrong way to do this. You're here, you know, and That's yeah, I just kind of took that, took that down, like that shame down that, you know, like, no, this is a part of me like this, that I'm, I'm here to pray and to cleanse myself from these traumas. And yeah, it's, I think, you know, no matter where you are or what situation you're in, if you, if you need some sort of um, direction, you know, don't forget to pray, but also um, don't just pray for what you need, you know, give thanks as well for the blessings that our creator ha has given us. I think that uh, when we pray for something that specific, I think that's kind of misguided in my way, rather than yeah. in my interpretation, rather than asking the universe to guide us because we don't know we don't we don't have so much knowledge that we know exactly what we need and 
what the future will hold. Rather, we right. should open That's ourselves to the possibilities, <laughs> yeah. in my yeah, view. So we should open ourselves to the possibilities that the universe will guide us in love and light and, yeah. and hope that we will be accepting of that love and light rather than saying, I want this specifically because yeah. we get it. It's never yeah. what we imagine it will be. And sometimes <laughs> it, it actually is destructive to us when we get what we mm-hmm. want, you know? So, so like, true. You know, yeah, yeah. And I, I do like, have a question I, that I wanted yeah. to. Oh, no, continue, continue. No, no, like, what were you April, no I was going to just share this real quick. Like, I've obviously, um, I come from a past of a lot of violence and, and that sort of dysfunction. But, um, you know, it's true the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And yeah. some of the, you know, most awful things that have happened to me, there was somehow, you know, something bigger to that. And, you know, it's, it's like a growth, like you have to kind of fall, pick yourself back up and and grow and learn from that. So you don't always get what you want, right? But you just got to keep, keep going. It's a very egocentric idea that, you know, I know everything. I know what I need. I know what I want. Rather there, that I has to be dismantled so that we're part of that larger picture so that then we see ourselves as a mosaic and we see ourselves as serving the population, serving the larger whole, and that we are functioning in a way we're experiencing the traumas and the and the dramas of, of the larger whole, and that w- there's nothing unique about our uh, experiences. Rather, all of us have experienced some level or some degree of the rhythms and the currents that we've experienced, and acknowledging that that we participate in the mm-hmm. larger uh, oceanic human race or human uh, condition. Uh, and that those currents flow through all of us, that we all kind of experience that's, some level of violence. That's and, one of the most yeah. violent things, I think. Yeah. One of the most violent things, anyway, I think that capitalism has given us. Exactly, is this, exactly, yeah. This just yeah. false idea that we are benefited more by uh, worrying the most about ourselves and not understanding that when we work as a collective, we're actually more <laughs> likely to be happy and fulfilled in all the things all the, it's, it's funny because when you hear about people and all the things that they're asking for in their lives that would make their lives better, it's as if every single one of those things would be procured and given to them and, you know, make their lives better and what they're seeking if they actually just lived and worked in community with their, you know, fellow man. Like the yeah. connection, I think at the core of every human being's problem who lives in a westernized capitalist society is that they lack connection and you know people fear what they don't know so when you try and explain to them that that when you try and explain to them in love that the things that are keeping them so miserable are also the things that are oppressing them and us them and people who don't look like them them and the minorities that they've been taught to fear and hate when you try to explain this to them it's it's like it's met with so much defensiveness and mm-hmm. and i think that that's why is because when you've been when your very consciousness is structured by capitalism and by you know this this idea of the self being the highest uh you know the the most important uh entity in your world that's that's what happens like you you then start to see the world around you and the things that could be made better in it as something that is like personally attacking you because you've only ever been taught to think about you and your comfort right yeah 
So true. It seems yeah. like the whole false narrative about <clears throat> in capitalism is that, oh, you know, you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but other people are, you know, the opportunity for other people to lax off and lays off. You know, there's no incentive is like one of the major things. Like when mm -hmm. we talk about social networks and we talk about social um, uh, nets, rather, we think about, oh, they're just lazing off. But I mean, like these 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 narratives are like there's a certain point they're they're disruptive to the whole truth that, you know, people are that. The idea, the whole idea needs to be dismantled from the ground up. We need to understand that, you know, we're all kind of struggling to survive, that even people who are, you know, um, uh, supposedly benefiting from the society are, are burdened by the idea that they are trying to save everyone, all this kind of thing. Yeah. And that we need to understand that, um, as you were saying, that, you know, having the, the uh, you know, also one of the things I wanted to touch in on is you know having not being people pleasers, you know not having the ability or ability to set boundaries, all this kind of thing. So that when we're we're engaged in dialogue with people and they set up these false narratives, we're like saying, "Listen, you need to understand that uh, I don't want to get drawn into these like superficial contestations. We want to get we want to raise awareness. We want to yes and you mm -hmm. know to our history, to our to our each each other's struggles rather than." Um, kind of setting up these false narratives, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes that clear, but hopefully I was yeah. communicating well. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Talk so true, VJ. Yeah. And I think the more we step away, like what Tori mentioned about being having that capitalist mindset and yeah. lifestyle and get more, like if you think about traditional indigenous communities, it was very communal and that that community that tribe wouldn't have been able to survive if they if they thought that way mm. everybody in the tribe had a had a role to play and there was nobody above each other even the chief if anything the chief may have been kind of below their people because they would put their people's needs first not mm. their own needs and their own you know wants first it would it would be definitely you know, the elders and the, the children and, and the women. Um, yeah, we'll get there. I, I believe we'll get there. Yeah. Um. I actually had a question um, going back to something that was brought up earlier in the conversation. Um, it, you touched on a little bit about reclaiming. Um, as, a, as a Puerto Rican person, uh, I've, I totally get where you're coming from because I've had to do a lot of reclaiming of my own cultural identity and not just as uh, a Taino, but as a black person in America, because, you know, I live at, the, I, I'm, a, I'm mixed race. So I live at this strange intersection of, of Afro Tainoism. So mm -hmm. it's sort of what you spoke on uh, briefly about feeling kind of like an imposter syndrome in terms of being able to claim the things that are rightfully part of who you are. If you wanted to talk about a little bit about your journey in um, taking back your cultural yeah. identity and sort of the, the growing pains of that and also how how you reach the place of ownership against yeah. that. Yeah. So it's kind of like, like you, you take it back. So I actually used to live in New York City um, I, my, the first place I lived there was Flatbush, Brooklyn. And, um, um, you know, I, I met a lot of people and amazing people, but often people would ask me, 
what, what nationality are you? So, you know, I'd play the nationality game with them and, you know, I would, I would, I would be curious to see what they thought. And, you know, quite often um, they would act like they would think I, I was Puerto Rican. And then I would tell them my, my heritage and they're like, well, no, you don't, you don't look native American. You don't, you don't dress, you don't dress native American. I'm like, well, that's a stereotype. Like what you expect me to be in my traditional regalia going Uh to, you know, the store or, you know, just going out and, you know, I've, I've pretty much gotten that my entire adult life, but it's like, people try to package you, you know, a certain way. And it's like, you know, it's okay. Like you don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to talk a certain way, but I feel like, you know, I correct people even in Canada where we, I, I think, you know, there's definitely in the urban areas, there's more indigenous people, but mm-hmm. even sometimes my own people will make those comments to me. Right. Cause you get stuck in these ideas of how people should be and how they should talk and how they should dress and, you know, you just yeah, have to yeah. really, you know, own who you are. Like, I'm from a mixed heritage as well. And I'm not ashamed of that. It's not my fault. I didn't choose my mother and father, you know, right, and I'm, right. I'm okay with being mixed. Like, it's, I'm not ashamed of either or, right? And it doesn't make me less Indigenous. It doesn't make me less, my father is Icelandic. Like, it doesn't, doesn't change any of that. I am proud of who I am. And I think a lot of us, you know, in North America, we do come from mixed heritages because we're in this like melting pot, if you will, where people, you know, people are, you know, getting together, they're having babies. And, you know, I think, you know, we, we were, if we had the ability to warp ahead a hundred years from now, you're going to see a lot of people that look like Tori, you know, that look like myself. And, you know, it's just, I, I think it's beautiful, you know, and just be, be true to you and don't, you know, care what everybody else thinks. Cause I, I know what happens in our indigenous communities. Um, and I know what happens in other people of colors communities that um, they call it the crab syndrome or lateral violence, right. Where, you know um, you know, we already face so much adversity from, you know, this colonial um, s- system, but then, you know, we get it from both sides. Right. And, right. Right. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, you know, when we think about embodying our um, our power and the idea, just to bring you to one of the f- final questions, uh, uh, you know, as you start to wind out, we have about ten more minutes left. But um, you know, when we think about truth to power, we think about embodying our truth, embodying our uh, embodying our uh, personal uh, power, uh, bringing it to the point where you know these. These uh, solid truths can be can become power and become an, an agency in this in this society that we're thinking mm-hmm. about agency. We're thinking about our ability to influence each other, to have an impact on the whole. Um, if you talk a little bit about kind of now, one of the questions was, what does the person's political mean to you and what does truth to power mean to you? Uh, thinking about how uh, in your own journey, kind of continuing on your journey towards this awareness, this growing awareness of yourself and your role in uh in bringing awareness raising awareness uh how um how how we become like in some ways it's like for all people of color and all people of 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 and these kind of uh in, especially for someone like you uh someone who's trying to fight for and raising awareness it becomes like people look at you in a way that it becomes like theater as you were saying about 
you know, kind of, you know, like looking at you to, to, to see what the what um, box they can fit you what in. Box they can fit you yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to get at that. We need to then, you know, balancing out, you know, raising awareness and also showing them that we were like normal human beings that we're just living yeah. amongst you and, and, you know, this kind of thing. So talking a bit about truth to power and the person's political is a question or it's focus. So how, how you, you can expand on that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So it was, um, it was quite a few years ago. I had, this is before we started our movement. I had attended an awareness walk an indigenous about indigenous communities. It wasn't about missing or murdered indigenous people, but it was an issue that affects our community. And um, I was really inspired by that. And it was like the spark was reignited in myself where, you know, I thought back to when I was a little girl and, you know, hearing about the civil rights movement and then also facing like some pretty serious racism where I grew up. Um, I remember, you know, being in kindergarten and, and being called racial slurs by other kindergartners, right? And uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, when I, when I got involved as an advocate, I didn't really talk a lot about my own journey. Um, I carried a lot of shame for many years. I went to great lengths um, trying to hide the fact that I was sexually exploited um, as a youth. And um, it wasn't until I met other survivors of that um, that were so courageous and shared their stories that, you know, it was like a light bulb went off and it's like, you know what, it's okay. Like it, what happened to me wasn't my fault. You know, what happened to me um, was awful. And I'm, you know, I thank creator to this day that I survived, but I don't have to carry that shame. And it was like, once it's I realized- not, It's not yours to carry at all. Yeah. It was never yours to carry. Yeah. Yeah. But for, I think for a lot of survivors of that, um, you know, for survivors of sexual exploitation, there's such a stigma and there's such shame around that, that, you know, some of us continue to hide that for the rest of our lives. But for me, um, kind of like I came out with it just actually a few months ago, I was kind of hinting about it. And, you know, but finally, I just decided to come out with it. And I have since then felt so liberated, like, I feel like I'm finally free. And I mean, you know, you still get the people that don't understand and, are, you know, may blame people. Um, but, you know, at the time, I thought as a youth, that's what I had to do to survive. And I was coerced into that. Right. But, you know, like the violence against Indigenous people is so normalized. So is the thought that, you know, somehow Indigenous people are responsible for their own murder. They're responsible for their own, you know, be going missing or being exploited. And that needs to change. You know, there's so many layers, like even, you know, the issue around missing murdered Indigenous people. It's not just one factor. It's many factors. And often, you know, we talk about stereotypes. People may stereotype and say, well, all missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, they must have been sex trade workers. Well, no, that's not the case. You know, many were school kids, teachers, you know, 
Um, but even if they were right. involved in being sexually mm -hmm. exploited, is it their fault? You know, is it their fault that they were, you know, murdered? Is it their fault? And, you know, like, why, why do people always have to find the thing that makes their life less valuable? Yeah, exactly. You know what like, I mean? And like, wh why yeah. does it, right? Like, why does any, anything, I, I, I will never understand that. Why there always has to be something that makes whatever happened to you yeah. um, okay. Yeah. Because I think what it, what that does is that it allows the person who is making those accusations to remove exactly. that person's humanity so that yeah. they can make it okay yeah. with them yeah. that these things are happening, you know? Yeah, that's very dangerous. Um, we, we had a, well, we have many serial killers here in Canada. Um, many are, you know, walking free. Um, but there was this one in particular, and I won't, I won't repeat his name because he doesn't deserve that. But um, he has often been um, thought of murdering like dozens and dozens of women. And he only stood trial for a fraction of those murders. And, you know, I, I believe he should have been brought back to to court for each and every life that he stole yeah. and, and given the families that opportunity to see him face, the you know, second, but it seems like the you second know, that people come up to stand up for rights of those oppressed, their narratives are then exploited as being negative. Whereas mm -hmm. like when you have uh, people in the status quo who do things bad, like rape or murder, their narratives exploited as being like, Oh, but, this person was a college whatever and had yeah. so much potential and and it's yeah. ridiculous how this these narratives are flipped mm -hmm. um yeah. and very angering and i think we need to understand that um you know oppressors are allowed to be yeah. pathologized but yeah. minorities are villainized exactly exactly yeah, yeah. wild exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah and i think you know on. yeah yeah and thanks to social media i don't hate social media yeah. <laughs> don't get me wrong like it it's great at exposing some of these truths right and yeah. you're but you're seeing more of that now like where there's these comparisons okay this white perpetrator you know completely unharmed but was arrested for murdering yeah. five people yeah and then you see the the indigenous or black person yeah. arrested for you know, a misdemeanor, misdemeanor and, yeah. you know, they're missing an eye and, yeah. you know, <laughs> they're beaten and, and maligned and all this kind of stuff and acted or, like, or, or like murdered, like or it's... murdered even. Yeah, yeah. So you're listening to the radio free Brooklyn, independent listener supported radio. This is the truth to power show. Uh, thanks for listening. Your support keeps us going. If you'd like to listen to radio for Brooklyn, when you're on front of your computer, if you're listening in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone or Android available in the app stores for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. Um, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news and new programming, upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at readyforbooking.org slash newsletter. Um, again, as we start to return to the studios uh, in this post-COVID-19 or this kind of in the interim of COVID-19, is disrupting everyone's lives right now. Ready for Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we made every effort to ensure the health and safety of our, of our hosts, staff, and community at large. Um, we, while most of our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, go a long way to helping us to stay on the air. The three ways you can help. First, you can give one-time donation or monthly pledge to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, there you can find great great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that will help you to set, uh, that we love to send to you to say thanks. 
You can also use your phone, text RFB give five, that's number five to four four three two one. That's only taking a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com slash smile and register ready for Brooklyn as your nonprofit that you wish to support. No donation is too big or too small, whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts and wish all listeners health and happiness in our as we weather the storm together. Uh, so last few minutes, I just want to give you guys last uh, thoughts, and then I'll play uh, Gloria, I guess, um, to let us out at the last few minutes. So go ahead, yeah, it would be nice for listeners to experience that. So go ahead, uh, uh, April, you have any last thoughts? Yeah, um, I think this was in your questionnaire, um, but I wanted to touch on, you know, there's been a lot of awareness, growing awareness on um, the violence and the epidemic of missing murdered indigenous women and girls and our two, we call, we call them our two-spirited community members, mm. um, but, you know, the reality is, is that our Indigenous men and boys are suffering too. And although the awareness is growing, that that is also a human rights crisis we need to look at. Um, I think, you know, they they need to be um, mentioned. And, and of course, they're, you know, the, the men and the boys, um, they need opportunities to share um, their truths as well in safe and culturally safe spaces so uh, and their families as well so um thank yeah you. thank you and tori any last call any last comments uh i i just actually wanted to give uh you an opportunity to tell everyone how to get involved website uh social media pages like how can yeah. people find you yeah sure yeah so um because we're grassroots 110 percent we have no money for a website uh, maybe one day but yeah we've we have um i believe we have over 500 5000 sorry followers on our facebook page um we're very new to twitter but we do have a twitter account so you just search stolen sisters and brothers awareness movement and you should be directed to um, we do have an Instagram uh, page as well, but it like Twitter, it's somewhat new to us. So stay tuned. In development. Yeah, yeah. In development. I love it. <laughs> love it. All right, cool, cool. Thank you, guys. So we, we um, air every Monday at 8 a.m. Hope to have you continue to listener. And uh, I'm playing a little bit of Glory. So we're just hearing a little bit of the Glory on the uh, other speaker. But thank you so much, guys, and hope thank to see you, you again. Uh, it rebroadcasts Thursday at 9 a.m. if you're listening on Thursday slot. Otherwise, every Monday at 8 a.m. Thank you, guys. Thank you Thank so you. much, Tori and VJ. Thank you. And Paul. just a little shout out to Flatbush. <laughs> it's been a while. Hey. Go Flatbush. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care, Thank guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye.